Welcome to the podcast of Church on the Rock in New Albany, Indiana. We believe the message you're about to hear will encourage you today. Good to see everybody today. How are you? Doing good? We're going to continue this series this morning on uh, revival. And uh, we're going to start in the book of Acts. Acts 3, start there today, and uh, worship team, you did a great job, come on, let's give it up for the worship team, don't they do a great job, trust me, you clap a little harder if you watch some of these churches live stream in our community, God bless them, it's a, it's a stretch of faith to worship in churches like that, but it's easy to worship in a church like ours, so we got to be thankful for our worship team, the musicians, the singers, uh, the wonderful sound team that don't get the credit. They only get the blame, but they get the credit today. They did a great job, and the wonderful people on the visuals that, that put up the scriptures and put up the uh, lyrics to the songs and all that. Aren't we thankful for them? Come on, let's thank them again for a second. And wasn't that awesome last week to see all those little kids come up and get prayed for? I was like, we got a lot of kids up in this church. You know, Dad always said there's more than one way to grow a church. Y'all start having babies? Church starts growing. It's easy as that. Hey, if they won't come from the world, we'll just birth them out in this church. We'll find a way to grow this church one way or the other. But that was awesome. We got a lot of kids at Church on the Rock. That, that's, a, that's a good report. That means we're growing and we're not a dead ship in the water. There's a lot of new life and young people in our church. And uh, that was awesome. They were precious and wonderful and beautiful. And they all behaved themselves. And some of them were just jamming to that music last week. And... Uh, it was good to see all the kids. So if you got your Bibles, we're going to turn to Acts 3, 19. It says, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing. Everybody say refreshing. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I love this verse. This is a key verse for today. It says, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Amen. If you're taking notes today, the title of my message is prayer, repentance, and revival. Prayer, repentance, and revival. Now, my alternative title was pray, repent, revive, repeat. If you like that one, pray, or I was going to add rinse, but that really didn't work. Pray, repent, revive, repeat. But I want to talk today about prayer, repentance, and revival. I, I realize this morning, we've been talking about revival on Sunday mornings in this series called Do It Again. And we've been talking about what is the definition of revival. Well, the definition of revival is real simple. If you take the word revival, it split, split it up to re and vival. It means to live again. So when God's presence comes on a church or on an individual or on a family, it means God's presence comes and he revives us so we live again. Because how many know all of us get into funks? 
All of us get into seasons where we're not feeling God. We all get into seasons where we get into a spiritual depression. It's like, I can't hear God. I can't feel God. Or maybe we get distracted. We get off track. But God has answers for us. And he comes when we seek him and we want him. God comes and he revives us. Where we live again. Where once we were, we were on life support spiritually, God revives us by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what happens in revival. And that can happen to an individual, it can happen to a family, but it can happen to a church. And we need that as a church, and I believe not just our church, but every church, especially in the United States, we need reviving. We need a revival to live again. God spoke in his word many, 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 many times that before Jesus comes back to this planet, Before he comes back, the second coming of Jesus, there will be a worldwide revival that will change this world. And that hasn't happened. There has been many revivals in nations and countries and continents, but there's never been a full worldwide revival like the one we will see. But it's got to start somewhere. And it starts with people that are hungering after God, that want God to move, that love God. And desire him. Now, I'm very aware that we're living in very stressful times. The Bible says it's going to be that way. That in the last days, stressful times would come. Times of pressure. Times of uncertainty. And you don't got to watch the news for more than a a few seconds to see there's a lot of pressure and stress and uncertainty. Uh, There's there's banks that have collapsed. There's uh, uh, Russia and China wanting to start a fight with United States, Ukraine, and everybody else. These are kind of big deals. Uh, there, there's all sorts of things that have happened in in the past few years with the the uh, pandemic and sickness and disease and all sorts of things and the culture change and there's major cultural battles about what's true and what's not true and is there truth and and our country is fighting that tension uh what do we believe about this and certain states and people believe this and other states believe this and there's pressure even you can get in fear about your children right now because of the culture and and times we live in today but If you study revival history all throughout your Bible, but all throughout the the history of the church, God always moves in the most stressful, turbulent times. God always moves when it seems like it's a lost cause. God always moves when the world seems hopeless. God always moves when it's the darkest days, the light shines the brightest. Come on, preaching better than you're saying amen this morning. So I realize we're dealing with all those things, but it's actually good news at the same time because God always moves in the darkest days. He does. And when he does, the light shines even brighter that the world around us that's extremely dark can see God moving. In the book of Isaiah, it says that, um, Arise, shine, for your light is come. But darkness would cover the earth and deep darkness the people. But God's glory or God's light should shine on us. Who's us? The church. So the darker it gets, the brighter the church should shine. We should not be hiding in our bunkers in Idaho. Stocking up for the rapture. Are you with me today? 
We should not be running scared from the world. We should not be hiding from the world. We should not be just out losing our minds over the curriculum that people preach in schools. Get in your prayer closet. Stop protesting. Stop fighting people. The world should not scare us. We have the answers. We have God on our side. We should be the light that shines in the darkness. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. That should be the church. But how many of you know if the church is not revived, what do we got to show? Especially in the American church. I'll speak freely because we live in America. Most American churches are not even close to revival. That's why the world's like, I'm, I'm going to go do something different. I'm going to find a different alternative set of beliefs because they don't even believe this. They're not revived. They're not alive. I, I see life in other areas of society and culture. I'll go join them. But how many of you know a revived church is what's going to change the world? A revived church is what's going to change this city and this region. And I'm not just talking about our church. I pray revival break out in every church in this community. You know why? Because even if all the people came that were lost, there would still be hundreds of thousands of people that still needed a church. Let's not act like we've done change the world with a couple churches that got a few hundred people or a few thousand people when there's hundreds of thousands of people in this community. But the church has to be revived first. We need to live again. The thing about hard times is if you handle it right and you deal with it right, sometimes hard times can push you to the place of humility and dependence upon God. So sometimes when we face this pressure, if we handle it the right way, maybe it's good for us that we go through some suffering. And some hardship and some pain. If it will push you to the place. Now God's not doing that to teach you something. But sometimes life will push you to the place. You got to go. I need God. Anybody there? Just me. I I need God to give me some answers here. I need God in my life. It's going to push you to the place that you get down on your knees and start praying again. Start seeking God again. Start hungering after God again. Start wanting God again. And when you're in that position, God will revive you. And if he finds a bunch of people that are personally revived, guess what? A church will be revived publicly. But it got to be more than just me wanting it. We all got to want it in here. So let hardship and pain and suffering push you to the right place. Not to get bitter at God or get mad at God. It's not his fault in the first place. But to get on your knees and start seeking him in humility and desire. And when you're in that spot, God says he looks for those who have a humble and contrite heart. He will revive them. Now, none of this is in my notes, but you're pulling it out of me this morning. We will talk today about prayer, repentance, and revival. Let's read it again in Acts 3.19, what it says. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing, refreshing, man, when I say that, don't, don't we all need that? I just feel better saying refreshing. That times of refreshing may come 
from the presence of the Lord. Look at what it says in the Weymouth translation. Repent, therefore, and reform your lives so that the record of your sin may be canceled, that there may come seasons of revival from the Lord. I want to talk about two things the rest of this service that you see in every great move of God and every revival, and it's repentance and prayer. Repentance and prayer always spark moves of God. This passage in Acts 3.19 says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that times of refreshing, or times of reviving, it says in the Weymouth translation, seasons of revival would come from the presence of the Lord. But guess what? We got to do something first before the refreshing comes. We have to do something first before the reviving of God comes. And that is the word repentance. Now, I know you're not shouting now, but you'll shout before it's all said and done. When we hear repentance in the church world, we look at it as a negative thing. When you hear the word repentance, you're seeing some guy on the street corner with a sign that says, turn or burn. Repent. Are you going to hell? Repent. And usually people saying repent are angry and mean and irritable. And so a lot of times when we hear the word repent, we take it as a negative thing. But the Bible word repent is not negative at all. When God tells us to repent, that's a good thing. Now, here's the definition of repent in the Greek translation. When it says, repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. The word repent is the word in Greek, metanoia. Metanoia just means this, to change one's mind and purpose. To change one's mind and purpose. So when we hear the word repentance in the Bible, that word just means change the way you're thinking. Change the direction you're going. Change the purpose of your life. It doesn't mean repent. God hates you. Repent, you're going to hell. That's not what it means whatsoever. It means God says you need to change your mind and your purpose. And when you do, there will be times of refreshing that comes into your life. So repentance means to change one's mind and purpose. But notice it goes on and says, and be converted. The word converted means to turn around and go back to. So when we say to repent and be converted, it means that you change your mind and your purpose. And you turn around and you go an opposite direction. You go a different direction. You go the direction that God has called you to go. And every time we do that in our life, about anything, there will come refreshing from God in that area. Any area we choose to repent and change our mind and thinking of and say, no, God, you're right and I'm wrong. And I'm going to change and be converted and turn around and go your way. There will be refreshing, reviving, and God moving in your life in that area when you choose to repent and be converted. In whatever area that needs to be. It could be a major thing. It could be a major sin. But it also could be just unwise thinking. It could be an area that God said, that's not my will for your life. Turn around, you're going the wrong direction. 
It could be an area where God has been speaking to you about. Not necessarily sin, but it's just a weight holding you down. In any area you say, God, I repent. I'm going to change my mind and my purpose, and I'm going to be converted. I'm going to turn around and go your direction. God's refreshing will come in that area. God's reviving will come in that area. Whatever that area is, and it's all different for all of us in here, are the areas that God is speaking to you about. But whatever area that is, when you choose to repent and be converted, when you turn around and go a different direction, times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. The Bible says it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not his harshness. It's because we believe, God, you're so good. Hear me. If you speak to me, it's only for my good because you're so good. So I'm going to listen to you more than listen to the people around me, listen to what the culture tells me, listen to what my own brain and body and feelings want to do. I'm going to listen to you because it's the goodness of God that leads me to change my mind and my purpose and turn around and go a different direction. It's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. Notice, if he's told you about something in your life, it's for your good. He's never telling you to repent because he's mad at you and trying to punish you. It's because he wants you to turn. Why? Are you here with me this morning? So that times of refreshing, come on now somebody, may come from the presence of the Lord. That times of reviving will come from the presence of the Lord. Why aren't most people revived in the church world? Because they're stubborn as a mule. God's speaking to them. They go, keep on walking. In the words of my lovely father, they go run their head into that wall. Time after time again, and God's saying, turn, turn around, turn around, turn around. They're going to keep beating their head against that wall because they're stubborn. And they're prideful. And they're like, God, why am I not refreshed? Why am I not revived? Why am I not excited about church? Because you're stubborn. And you're prideful. And you won't listen to God when he says, repent and be converted. That times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. Are you getting something this morning? So it means to change one's mind and purpose and turn around. One quote said it like this, repentance is not punishment, it's opportunity. When God tells you to repent, it's not punishment, it's opportunity for you to change your life and for you to get into a place of what? Refreshing, reviving. Charles Finney said this about repentance. He was a, a very famous revivalist, Charles Finney, in the 1800s. He said, revival is a renewed conviction of sin and a willingness to repent, followed by an intense desire to live in obedience to God. It is giving up one's will to God in deep humility. And I love this. This is from Dr. Henry Cloud, who's written many best-selling books, a strong Christian psychologist. He said this, Repentance means someone has had a change of mind about their behavior and shows it by changing direction. They turn around and do things differently. Repentance is not when you cry. Repentance is when you change. Y'all hear that? Let me say that one more time. Repentance is not when you cry. Repentance is when you change. 
That's the definition of repentance. That not only have you said, God, you're right, and I'm going to change my mind and purpose, but your actions and behavior has turned around. And you went a different direction. You went back to God. You turned from sin and turned to God. And you start heading his direction. And you had a change of not just your mind, but a change in your behavior and your direction. Repentance is not when you cry. And I'm for crying. I'm a crier. But how many know many of us had cried at an altar? Y'all want to play with me today? Y'all want to play with me today? Don't play with me today. We have cried at an altar and said, God, I'm so sorry. And we have done, that, done the, the thing we said we were sorry for by two in the afternoon. Am I right? We, we, we've, we've cried and said, oh, God, I'm so sorry. And we've had conviction come upon us. And, and we said, God, I'll never do it again. You were doing it by Tuesday night again. So repentance is more than just, God, I'm sorry, and I'm crying at an altar. It's good. I think you should be moved by something wrong in your life. But it has to go from more than just crying. Repentance means you're not just crying about it. That's good. You need to be moved by God. But repentance is not when you cry. It's when you change. When you change your mind and your thinking and you turn around to go God's direction. Now, some of you think that that I'm not talking to you because I'm not talking about some big, bad, nasty sin. Any area in your life that God talks to you about is an area that you need to repent in. Any area. And for most of you in here, it's not some big addiction. It may be in a relationship. It's maybe in the way you think about something. It's maybe in unwise decisions and God's saying, you need to change. Repent, therefore, and be converted. Why? So that times of refreshing will come from my presence. God's saying, I want to do something in your life. I want to revive you. And why do I want to revive you? So you can bring that to your church. And you can bring that to your family. And you can bring that uh, to your community. And God's saying, I want to revive you. But what does he have to do first? We have to repent and be converted. Why? So that times of refreshing, reviving will come from his presence. Now, I realize when I'm talking about repentance in 2023, this is an unheard of idea. You know why? Because we live in a postmodern humanist world that says everyone's right about everything. Whatever you feel is right. If it's right for you, it's right for you. Your truth, your life, your body, your choice, your truth. Whatever you want, whatever you feel like is right, is right. Whatever you feel is true, is true. So we have this cultural pressure on our world, but it seeps into the church and people act the same as the world does, thinking that just because they feel it or think it or want it, that it's right and it's truthful. Meaning, therefore, if you're right about everything, you have nothing to repent of. Isn't that right? But that kind of mentality sleeps into our churches because it's in the culture And you wonder why our world and our culture is where it is at today because no one wants to repent because no one's wrong. Let me say this in the nicest way possible. All of you are wrong. All of you are wrong. Let me hear you because you're not saying amen yet. All of you are stinking wrong. So am I. That doesn't mean I'm not loved by God and precious and holy and valuable to God and righteous. 
But I'm wrong in an area. Now, I don't know which one right now, but I'm wrong in some area, just like you are. Am I right or am I right? Come on. Why? Because I'm not God. I'm a human. Yeah, I made this image in his likeness, but me saying I'm wrong is not condemnation. Me saying I'm wrong is not guilt and shame. Me saying I'm wrong is being humble. Saying I'm not right about everything. And neither are you. But if you can't get to that place in your own heart and own mind, guess what? No refreshing or reviving will come from God's presence. Because the Bible says, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing and reviving will come from his presence. But we have to push against that cultural feeling because it's being shoved down our throat every day. Everyone's right. Whatever you feel is right, is right. Whatever's true for you is true for you. There's no such thing as truth. Whatever's true for you, live your truth, bro. It's all right. And if we live in a culture like that, then there will be no repentance. And if there's no repentance, there's no reviving. There's no refreshing. There's no ability for God to move in those people's life because they're not being humble enough to say, God, you're right and I'm wrong. It's like petting a cat this morning, but I'm okay. What I'm telling you right now are things you need to know. It's the attitude you need to have, not just right now, but for the rest of your life. Saying you're wrong about something is not putting yourself down. It's humility. God, I'm not right in every area. God's like, yeah, I know. Because you're not God. You're not perfect. And he's not looking for you to be perfect. But in the area you say, God, I'm going to listen to you about whatever that is. Could be a sin. Could be an unwise decision. Could be a way of thinking. I'm going to change my mind and my purpose. And I'm going to turn around, be converted so that my sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing and reviving will come from your presence. God will move in your life. But it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. One of the best examples of this is in Luke 15, the prodigal son says when he came to himself, what did he do? He turned around and he went home and he repented. And when he chose to repent to his father, his father said, it's all right. But because you did that, you came back with humility. I'm going to bring out the best, best calf. Come on, ribeye. Sorry, vegans. You're not scriptural. He said, I'm going to bring out the best calf and I'm going to kill it. Come on. I need an amen on that one. I'm going to bring out the best, the grass fed one, the organic one. Come on now, somebody. The T-bone, the porterhouse, the ribeye. He said, I'm going to bring out the best cow and kill it. I'm going to put a ring on your finger. I'm going to put a, a robe on your back. And my son that was lost is now found. And I'm going to bring you back. But the prodigal son came home. Why? Because he, the Bible says he came to himself. He came to a place of repentance. And what did he do? He changed his mind. And his purpose, and he was converted. He turned around, and he went back home. Yeah. 
He went back to the father's house. And when he did, his father received him with open arms. And what? Times of refreshing came from the presence of his father. Times of reviving came from the father's house. Why? Because the son chose to repent and be converted. Refreshing came. This word refreshing means to recover or to recover your breath. It means reviving and revival. That God gives us our life back, our strength back, our energy back. God revives us when we are in this place of repentance. You still with me today? So the Bible talks a lot about repentance. Repentance comes before anything else. We have to get it right in our mind, in our heart, and turn away from anything that's holding us back from God's plan, and we turn to God. I love this. This is what David said in the Psalms. This was after David had blown it. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had killed her husband. And in Psalm 51, he talks about his sin, and he comes back to God. He repents. Psalm 51, 16 and 17 The psalmist David said, you do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. And you do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifices you desire is a broken spirit. And you will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. David said, when I come back to you, God, I'm not going to come back with my pride. And if you wanted to sacrifice, I would give it to you. But you're not looking for that. You're looking for the attitude of my heart and my mind. In a repentant heart, God will not turn away. That should be our posture towards God, that we have this attitude and repentant heart. Not just when we majorly blow it, but even on the little things. Why? So that times of refreshing may come from his presence. But let's talk about prayer. The other thing that is always mentioned in every revival in history is repentance and prayer. There was a move of repentance and prayer before there was a move of God in every revival. There was a move of people repenting and praying to God before God ever moved in reviving his people. Whether that's the Old Testament, the New Testament, or for the past few thousand years of church history, there was always people repenting and praying before God moved. Now, I'm assuming all of you in here want that, and you want God to move. That's why I'm talking to you like this this morning. And so once we repent and be converted and change and turn, God is looking for people to pray. Let's look at what it says in James 5, 16 in the New Living Translation. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now, confession is always linked to repentance. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. If we're going to see God move, we have to have a move of prayer in this church and in our lives like never before. John Wesley said it like this, God does nothing on this earth except through believing prayer. I know that sounds like a strong statement, but Jesus said the same things in the Gospels. He said in the Lord's Prayer that we should pray 
people should pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Meaning, it's not automatically happening God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven unless his people pray for it to happen like it's being done in heaven. God doesn't just move to move. He moves in people's life that are repentant and they're praying for God to move. They're praying for God to move in their family. They're praying for God to move in their church. They're praying for God to move in their region. They're praying for God to move in their nation. And they're not going to be satisfied than anything less than revival taking place. God moves when people pray. The plan of God moves forward when people pray. And I'm not just talking about praying for yourself. The prayer I'm talking about is what the Bible calls intercession. The Bible says that we should intercede on the behalf of other people. And really I see in the scriptures in the history of revival, revival happens when people stop just praying for themselves and they start praying for their nation. They start praying for their family. They start praying for their friends. They start praying for their region. They start praying for the lost. And they start interceding for those outside of their own life. God moves on their behalf. But God's looking for somebody to partner with him in prayer. Come on, I'm preaching better than you're saying amen today. God's looking for people to partner with him in prayer. He's looking for people that will say, I'll pray. I'll pray for that church. I'll pray for that pastor. I'll pray for my work. I'll pray for this region. I'll pray. He's looking for somebody to partner with in prayer. Why? So his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven because it's not automatic. We have to partner with him in prayer. The Bible says to be co-laborers with him to accomplish his will on earth as it is in heaven. So I'm calling you up, church. We all need to be intercessors in here. We all need to take on the spirit of intercession. I know most of the modern American church barely has its own prayer time for themselves. That's why we're so dead. That's why we're so dry. That's why the American church is limping along on life support. They barely can pray for even themselves and spend time with God. And if they can't even do that for themselves, how will they ever pray for anyone outside of their life and have any time to intercede? We need to focus if we want God to move. It doesn't just happen. Many of us thinking here, if the worship's awesome, God's going to move. Not necessarily. If the preacher's good, God's going to move. Not necessarily. God moves when people have prayed about it. People have asked him about it. And not just a few people and not just me. When all of us ask God to move today, he'll move. When we all want God to move in this region, he'll move. When we're asking God to move in our city, he'll move. When, he, when we ask him to move in our family, he'll move. But if we don't ask, if you ask not, you'll have not. I want to stir you up this morning. We have to start getting in a different level of prayer as a church. Part of the reason our church has been stuck is a lack of prayer. But like I said, if you can barely have your own prayer life, 
you never get into praying for your church or praying for your region or praying for your friends or praying for your neighborhood if you can't even have an own, your own personal time with God. I'm not saying that with condemnation, but I want to say it with conviction today. Part of the reason our church has been stuck to a level is lack of prayer. God only moves through believing prayer. And he needs more than just me. He needs more than just Mr. Dale or Miss Don or Miss Lois or Mr. Jim. He needs all of us. And you're all responsible. If you're part of this church, if you eat my free food at the picnics, you're responsible. You want a ham sandwich? Get in your prayer closet. Y'all want that Qdoba? Hey. Get your prayer shawl on and get your prayer life going. You want that free cone of ice come summertime? You better start praying. That's a part of being a part of a church. Taking responsibility that it's not just up to the pastor or the worship team or the staff. Or, you know, I don't need to pray for it. The intercessors will pray for it. The intercessors is you. Who are you talking about? You're just talking about the people that have given themselves more to prayer than you have. So you call them intercessors when you're called to be an intercessor. Come on now, somebody. Hey, I'm preaching better than you're responding. Come on. I almost didn't come to church today. I had to take NyQuil last night. So y'all can respond a little bit better this morning. If I got enough life in this, these bones to preach this good today, y'all can respond with me. God's looking for people to partner with him in prayer. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord look to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for someone to show himself strong on their behalf. He's looking for people that are praying, saying, okay, I can move there because they want me to move. I can move in that church because people are asking me to. I can move in their family because they're praying. I can move in their life because they are asking and seeking me. God moves when we pray. But he's looking for people to partner and co-labor with him to accomplish his will on the earth. Look throughout the history of revival. You see people sometimes starting with just a small group of people repenting and praying. For example, the book of Acts, chapter 2. There was 120 in the upper room that had spent weeks up there. What were they doing? Repenting and praying for God to move. And then Acts 2 happened the day of Pentecost. God moved in the early church. Why? Because people were repenting and praying. 120 of them. Now, we got more than 120 people in this church. If God can move in 120 people on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, God can move with the 120 people at Church on the Rock who are seeking after him. It doesn't have to be a lot of people. It just has to be a few people that care and are in faith. But almost every great move of God has started with a small group of people. Sometimes just one person or two people. 
Look at the history of revival. Azusa Street Revival started in the 1900s, which swept across the entire world over the past 100 years. And now there's hundreds of millions of Pentecostals across the world from that Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles. But it started with one man named William Seymour who was praying in a barn by himself that God would move and God would pour out his spirit. And that one man produced hundreds of millions of Pentecostal believers today. One man. None of us are insignificant. Now, I didn't stay with one man. It grew and it grew and it grew. But it started with one man repenting and praying. Evan Roberts in the Wales revival in the 1900s was one man who prayed locked himself up in a room and prayed and prayed and prayed that God would move in the country of Wales. And God changed that country in the early 1900s. In the Hebrides revival in Scotland, which Duncan Campbell came over and was a part of, was started by two grannies. Now, I just want to say this. This is in my notes. But shout out to all the grannies. Because if you look at the history of revival, almost all these stories started with grandmas. Come on, if you're a grandma in here, wave your hand in the air. Come on, grandmas. Come on, grannies. Almost every revival you look at, it started with two or three older women who had time to pray and gave themselves to prayer and started moves of God. In the Hebrides Revival, which is in Scotland, was started by two grandmas. One was 84, one was 82. And it started a move of God that swept over Scotland in the early 1900s. Two grandmas. None of you are left out of God's plan. None of you are insignificant to God's purpose. Two grandmas. I got more than two grandmas in here. Where you at? Let's go. You're a part of this in prayer. Two grandmas sparked a move of God that changed thousands and thousands of people's life and changed the nation. Two grandmas that were 84 and 82, and you know what? They had time on their hands because they were retired, and they just sat around, and they prayed together and asked God to move, and no one probably cared about these two grandmas. They lived in the middle of nowhere on an island in Scotland, and they kept praying and praying and praying, and guess what? God sent revival to that country. It changed Scotland. Because of two grannies praying. Don't tell me you got to be a certain type of person to be a part of God's plan. Don't tell, you, tell me that, you know, well, I just don't have that good a prayer life. God wouldn't listen to me. Two grandmas who no one even knew who they were were praying. And God moved. Why? Because God moves where he's wanted. God moves where people are asking him and seeking him and pleading with him to move. But God's looking for somebody to partner with in prayer. You getting something today? In the great awakening in this country, there was, there was one in the 1700s and the 1800s. Names like George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Wesley, and a man by the name of Charles Finney were a part of these moves of God that changed this country in the 1700s and the 1800s. A lot of these men were riding horseback throughout our country. No trains, 
no ships, no cars, no planes. They were riding horseback from city to city, one person, sometimes two people. And they were changing this country in the 1700s and the 1800s. The great awakenings that happened in this country were sparked by one or two people just riding a horseback, praying for God to move, and then they would have meetings after that. The whole city would get saved. The bars would shut down. The brothels would shut down because the city would be changed. And that happened all over the United States in the 1800s and the 1700s by just a few men that were repenting and they were praying. But I want to tell you a story about one of these men, Charles Finney. Charles Finney, great revivalist. There was a man who traveled with him that was named Daniel Nash. They affectionately called him Father Nash. He traveled with Finney everywhere he went in the 1800s. And they would have revival everywhere that Charles Finney went. And we're not just talking about 30 people in a service or 100 people in a service. We're talking thousands and tens of thousands of people would come out to a service in a field to hear him preach and to, and to experience God's presence. Cities would be changed through the revivalist Charles Finney. But Charles Finney said he owes his success to Daniel Nash. Because Daniel Nash was his companion that traveled with him and he was an intercessor. Now really listen to what I'm saying. I'm about to close. Hear me. He owed his success to Daniel Nash, because everywhere that Charles Finney went, Father Nash would go two weeks ahead of time, and he would get a room in that city, and he would lock himself up, and he would pray. They said about Father Nash, he would go to all these cities around the country riding horseback. He would get there two weeks before Finney. He would lock himself in the room, tell the people he didn't want anything to eat or drink. He would be in his room for two weeks straight praying before Charles Finney got there. And when he got there, they would always have revival in every city he went. Why? Because Charles Finney was a great preacher? Maybe. I don't know. I've never heard him been in the 1800s you know why he had revival because father nash prayed two weeks before he got there that god would move and god moved your part isn't insignificant in this church i need you well pastor jordan's a good preacher he'll fix it not if nobody's praying God won't move. We need people praying, preparing the ground for God's word to be planted in it, preparing people's hearts for God to move, asking God's spirit to move during the ministry time and during the worship time. We need God's presence to move. And we got to have people that are interceding for that to happen, not just once a year, but every week. Every time we have a service, we should be praying, God, I need you to move. I want you to move. Father Nash would lock himself up in that room for two weeks everywhere Charles Finney went, and he would pray out the plan of God for those meetings. A lot of times they would go by his room, and they would hear him groaning or moaning, which we know what the Bible says that's called travail when you're praying. And they would think that there was something wrong with him, but nothing was wrong with him. He was just travailing about what God was going to do in that revival. 
And he was birthing that out by prayer. That only happened through prayer. The success of Charles Finney, great revivalist, was attached to Daniel Nash, the intercessor. On his tombstone, Daniel Nash, his tombstone says this. Daniel Nash's tombstone says this. Labored with Finney and mighty in prayer. Labored with Finney and mighty in prayer. The hundreds of thousands of people that were reached during that great awakening wasn't because of Charles Finney. It was because of Daniel Nash. Can I ask you this morning? How many of us at the end of our life that it could be said labored with church on the rock, mighty in prayer? Labored with Dr. Jacobs, mighty in prayer. Labored with Pastor Jordan, mighty in prayer. Labored with women of God like Pastor Nancy, mighty in prayer. No one's part is insignificant. Stop looking at people that have the microphone and thinking they're the ones called by God. They're the ones anointed by God. No, we're not. Nothing would have happened in Charles Finney meetings if there wasn't a Father Nash praying. In a room where no one saw him. In a room where no one cared. Praying in times that no one applauded him. They just applauded Charles Finney. But the great awakening was because of him. One man. Not 20. Not 100. Not thousands. Not hundreds of thousands. One person praying. Are your prayers significant? I think they are. Is one person's prayers important? They are to God. One person. Because he gave his life to pray. For the move of God in revival. Labored with Finney. And mighty in prayer. Let it be said of all of us in here that we are going to do what God has called us to do and labor with the men and women of God and the churches and the ministries that he's called us to be a part of and be mighty in prayer. That when we go to heaven, that people notice it because we labored with God in our prayer. And we didn't just keep it to ourselves, but we trained other people to pray like we prayed. Hear me, church. Our church will stay stuck if we don't have people praying. And I love you as your pastor, but people aren't praying. Some are. Most aren't. That's why we have gotten 
so far in God's plan, but we haven't gotten to the place that, that we need to go as a church, which is a region-changing church. It's not a small thing, so it's not going to take small prayers. It's a big thing. It's going to take big prayers, people asking big, people praying big, people giving their time to God in prayer, labored with Finney, mighty in prayer. Brother Daryl, could you come play? You guys get something this morning. The Bible says that when we pray, people's hearts are like soil and they must be prepared before the word of God can go into their heart. And prayer cultivates and tills up the ground of their heart so they can receive it. So when we come to church, we need to pray for somebody other than just ourselves. That when I preach, because you can preach an amazing message, but if they're not ready to receive it, they won't get anything. But if people have been praying for them, maybe you don't even know who they are. The word of God will be able to go into their hearts that they can receive everything that the word wants to plant into their lives. Let's look at a few passages. Matthew 9, 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like a sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers, what, what did he say? Labored with Finney? The laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That's what I'm asking today. I need some laborers in prayer that are going to ask God for the harvest. They're going to ask God for revival. They're going to ask God to move. They're going to ask God to not just have church as usual in another worship service, in another preaching service, in another life group, but they're going to ask God to move. And God's going to move because they've asked him and labored in prayer. God said when he saw the people, he said, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into his harvest. But we know this, even though the seed has been planted in people's lives, it takes rain for it to grow. We know in the Bible that rain is always symbolic of the Spirit's work. Rain is always symbolic of revival, but in the Old Testament it says, ask for the rain in the time of the rain. Why? Because if there's no rain in spring, there's no harvest in the fall. And it's great that we're preaching the word of God, and it's great that we're praying for people to come, but we need to pray for revival, the spiritual rain to fall. Why? So the seeds that have been planted in people's hearts would start growing. And they would grow up and there would be a harvest of people that would come into the kingdom of God. Because that's always God's goal, that there would be a harvest of not plants, but people. But if there's no spiritual rain in spring that we prayed for, there'll be no harvest in the fall. Let me speak freely. In a lot of churches like us, 
we're expecting the harvest, but nobody's praying for rain. They're just expecting it to fall on their head. They're expecting to just go out and there will be fields and fields of harvest. But who prayed in the spring? Because if there's no rain in the spring, there's no harvest in the fall. And I see churches like us going around and around in circles saying that there's going to be a harvest and there's going to be a harvest and there's going to be a harvest. Not if there's not people praying and asking God for the rain of revival to water those seeds so the harvest would come of people in the fall. God's goal is people. He will not come back until all of the harvest that belongs to him has come. But if we don't pray in the rain and spring, there'll be no harvest in the fall. Look at what James 5.16 said about prayer. And then it goes on and it talks about Elijah. James 5.16. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so they may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Verse 17. Notice what it says. Still talking about prayer? Elijah was a human as we are. Doesn't that make you feel better? He's not like some superhuman person. He was a human like us. And yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. But verse 18. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. That's harvest. Let's look at it in the passion. So when he prayed again, the skies opened up over the land. So the rain came again and produced the harvest. He's talking about prayer. Now, I'm not talking about physical rain. When Elijah prayed, it physically rained. But in the New Testament, we're not talking about physical rain. We're talking about spiritual rain for the harvest to come. And he prayed in the natural for physical rain to come, and there was a harvest. But God says, we are just like Elijah. We're human like him. And when he prayed, it began to rain. And when it started to rain, the harvest came. And the earth began to yield its fruit and its crops. And that will happen the same way for us. When we begin to pray like Elijah, not asking for natural rain, but asking for spiritual rain. Because there's been a lot of seeds planted in the lives of people, not just in this church, but in this community. They have heard the word, but there needs to be spiritual rain reviving from heaven that comes and waters them so they can grow and the harvest can come. And it says, if Elijah could do this and he was a human, your prayer is just as powerful to pray for spiritual rain. And when he prayed, it says the harvest came. If we don't pray for the rain in spring, there won't be a harvest in the fall. Could you stand up this morning? Did you guys get something today? Thank you so much for listening today. For more information about what's happening at Church on the Rock, visit cotrin.org.